Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Barbara Nichols. Barbara is an accomplished information technology professional with over 35 years of experience assisting clients and software vendors to develop data-driven solutions. She founded MetaView 360 in 2002 and consults in the areas of data governance, integration, metadata management, and data architecture. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here, Anthony. So why don't we start off, why don't you take a moment and, and give our audience a little bit more background um, on, on yourself and, and how you formed uh, this organization uh, back in 2002. So you're pushing 20 years in business and, and right. kind of how data has been this consistent thread throughout your career. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, you know, back when I started my career in the Jurassic period, um, <laughs> I, you know, I started out as a programmer and, uh, you know, business analyst, and then managed a group of programmers. And I remember um, looking at a system where they told me I needed to, you know, figure out all these places, you know, what did all this data mean from the, you know, the COBOL file structures. And I started looking and my gosh, there was in this order management system, ship date, preferred ship date, required ship date, uh, last ship date, uh, future ship date, you know, and, and I just said, Oh my God, this is horrible. I would never do this for a living. <laughs> and then I, um, I kind of got bitten by the data bug. I was managing a group of, uh, uh, folks and we were building a new export system for, uh, digital equipment corporation. So you had to go through a licensing process. This was back in the Cold War. So you had to go through a licensing process to yeah. get things shipped. And there were certain places you were not allowed to ship things. Um, like vaxes could not be shipped behind the Iron Curtain because of the um, processing capabilities they had. Right. Um, and a couple of the guys on my team and I, we took a course. And it was called Data Analysis for Database Design. Okay. And basically, it was teaching you how to model data so that you didn't, if you got the data modeled correctly, the only code you really needed to write was create, retrieve, update, delete, because right. all of the linkages between the data specified how everything was related to each other. So we did this, we built a data model for the export department, It we built a process model to go with it that linked with the data model, and we built a system that really stood the test of time. When um, digital was uh, running out of order numbers at one point, and they would go around and they would say, you know, well, how long is it going to take you to update the order number, which was called like the DEC number or the DEC underscore NO or digital pound sign or 15 other flavors of ways that people had named it. And it cost the company, like in 1976 dollars, like $2 million and two years to implement wow. that change. And after we built this system, the, the next thing that needed to be expanded was the part number. And that was a pretty complicated number. And everybody else was saying two years. And I said, well, you know, it'll probably take us about three months and they said, why are you saying three months? And everybody else is saying two years. I said, well, we have a database. 
we basically have to expand a field, recompile all of our programs, and they will simply run. That's all we're going to need to do. And if I could do it, you know, without having anything else to do, we could probably do it in about three weeks, but I'm inserting other work. So I think three months. And that was when the data management program at Digital was really founded. And I was asked to be one of the founders of that. And we brought data governance, data modeling, training, everything, organizational structure to Digital Equipment Corporation, which was I think had about 200,000 employees at that point and didn't have a single data standard, not one. So it was a big job and we put the whole infrastructure together. And that sort of is the foundation of where I learned, you know, how to do it. And uh, I I owe my thanks to the export department, I guess. (laughs) I had to learn a lot about it. (laughs) <laughs> how how much like forward visibility did you have when you were on that path? Like when you started out on that mm-hmm. journey to start to become better with data in, in a big organization, did you know yeah. where you were heading or, or were you kind of just figuring it out as, as you go along? Oh, no, we were figuring it out as we were going along. I There was one woman in the organization. Um, she worked in an architectural capacity and she knew how to model data. I think she was the only other person who had ever done it. I kept taking our data model to her and going, now, is this right? Is this right? You know, and she'd go, yeah, that looks good. I go, okay. But I would go back and check with her because I wasn't convinced this was going to really work. But um, it did. And uh, we had lasting success. And at one point, um, the technology architects were called in because we needed to be able to ramp the system up to do like four times as much as they were doing before. And they came in, they thinking, Oh, well, we'll fix what these people have built. And they came away and say, um, they said, no, they, they actually did it right. And it'll handle the volume and they've optimized all the transactions and separated data capture from data access. And it just works. So uh, that was very validating. So I'm, I'm maybe projecting, but I, I, where, because I, I assume uh, based on that comment, you're not super deep technical, but you obviously have data modeling and, and some technical backbone oh, yeah. and, and, and understand how databases yeah. work. Where would you say, yep. especially at, at that time in your career, you fell mm-hmm. on that um, you know, technology versus business continuum? Like where, whereabouts were you at yeah. at that point? And have you, have you moved since then or, or do you still kind of orient in that, that fashion? Well, I, it's, um, back then, I mean, I certainly, I knew how to program in the, the, you know, the languages that we were using then, but I, you know, I realized I was probably never going to be the best programmer in the world. I didn't actually like it once I had figured out the problem, then you had to code it. What a waste, (laughs) you know? So, um, so I really got turned on by the data because by getting the model, right, you just, you built a huge lever for doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And that really appealed to me. So I would say my background makes it really, I can talk to technical people. I understand what they're doing. I understand their pressures. I understand what can be done. Mm -hmm. And I understand it from a structure point of view, you know, from the underlying data structure. And over the years, 
I think I've kind of pretty much kept that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I worked for um, Essential Software before it was built by IBM. And there were five of us who created at a patented technology that allowed disparate tools to talk to each other as though they'd been built together. And it was very technical. I wasn't coding any of it. You'd never want me to do that. But working on explaining it to the whole sales force, showing them how to sell it, building the demos, you know, giving them the ammunition they needed to go out into the field and sell the product was sort of where I was, as well as linking up to the uh, engineers as I was testing you know, their product, they'd say, here, try this. And I'd break it in five minutes, you know, and uh, we'd go back and forth. So I'm probably kind of in the middle, but I don't code. <laughs> yeah, well, and, but you have, and, and I think, you know, you, you and I have somewhat similar backgrounds in that, that we have some technical backgrounds. Like we know how to yeah. program, we know some of those basics. And I, I know there's plenty of people out there that are successful yep. in their data careers that have no technology background whatsoever. But I uh-huh. still advocate that we should all have at least some sort of technical technology boot camp. Like at least learn yeah. some Python programming or at least learn like yeah. if, if you're a data person and you can't write SQL, learn SQL. Mm-hmm. Like at least learn exactly. some of that. Um because it teaches mm-hmm. you not just about you know the the technology itself, but it it helps you create more structure to the way you solve problems. And I think, and I yeah. loved your answer about how you're, you've been kind of oriented towards data for a long time, and that sits mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle. And I agree with that. I think I actually I, I laughed when you said like you you figured out how to make it work, and then you had to go build the whole thing in in the yeah. on the programming side, and that isn't right. as much fun. And I agree with you on that. Like I have the same perspective, but but that's where data is so interesting because it is such a core piece of that problem solving part of both yeah. business and technology. I think if you really yep. enjoy solving problems, it really enjoy trying to make things work from a logical mm-hmm. perspective, not just a like yep. a physical perspective. Like uh, when I did some web development work, mm-hmm. I just was mind-numbingly bored with all the click Mm. events and all this stuff that I had to code for. It's like, that was not for me. But when I tried to figure out, okay, what does a website need to capture in terms of data that then can Mm -hmm. be useful for the people that are interacting with that website, that was a lot more interesting to me. So I think you're really onto something about why there's a certain kind of personality type or certain persona that you have when you really gravitate towards data. Cause there's, you got a bunch of data people. We'll have a wonderful conversation about how interesting data is or what have you. But if you get a non-data person in that group, it's, it's like me at an insurance dinner. I just have no yeah. interest <laughs> in uh, the topic at hand. So. I think it's really helpful. I, I really appreciate what the technologists have to go through because I know what a database will and won't do. I know there isn't any magic that it all has to, you know, it's all zeros and ones, you know, when you get right down to it. And that was my very first job is, you know, working with assembler language. So, um, you know, it's all, uh, I really appreciate what they have to go through to make um, what you've modeled real, especially if there's a system that already exists because you can't just slam this stuff in there. You know, it's going to need to be done in a thoughtful way so that other things don't break. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it can happen 
on the business side too. You know, one of the things I liked about data is that it's, it's science and art, you know, it's mathematically, um, you know, the foundation is predicate calculus, but then you throw human beings into it and all the semantics that they bring. And then the English language, which has unbelievable anomalies, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, are literal, are shades of meaning, whatever. And so what's hard is, is being able to do both, mm-hmm. you know, understanding the technology and the mathematics behind it. And one of my favorite sayings, and it was from Watts Humphrey was all models are wrong mm-hmm. because they're models, but good ones are useful. That's right. You know, so you have to understand how it gets put together so that it works. And the business needs to understand that they've been doing certain things that are going to make it very difficult to implement something on the other side. And that's where I sort of sit. Yeah. So it, it, it makes me think, too, um, you know, one of my uh, favorite quotes is, is, is it's not rocket science. Controlled explosions are a lot more predictable than people. <laughs> I think this that's, is true. Uh, so, yeah. um, but I do want to I want to walk back a comment I made just moments ago uh, in terms of the insurance being interesting. I actually find insurance very interesting from a data perspective, but I, yeah. I was, I made the comment because I have a lot of friends in the insurance space and then they get okay. together in their community of insurance people. Yeah. It's another level excited. that I just don't get. And so that was yep. my comment. No offense to the insurance folks out there. I want to no. make sure <laughs> they understand where I'm coming from there, I, but I do, I find insurance normal, interesting, not insurance as yeah. my life. Interesting. Anyway, yeah. um, I want to talk a little bit about, so, so we understand kind of where you're coming from and your and your perspective mm-hmm. you have a business that you've had for 18 plus years now and you know mm-hmm. doing consulting doing a lot of work in the data management space can you talk a little bit about how uh that business came into being and how mm-hmm. you've um you know ha- how you've been successful for for so long that's it's yep. such a, a such a great achievement well i think in the beginning i sort of had a built-in base you know when i um when I left Essential Software, um, you know, I got laid off there, you know, been a series, digital was going out of business, they were laying off a lot of people. And then we formed our own company for a little while, seven of us built the, uh, the um, uh, product that we had had created the model that would integrate other models. And, um, and then we, we as a team went to work for uh, Essential Software, they bought the company. And um, when I left there, I had trained all the salespeople how to sell the metadatabase that they had that sat underneath um, their ETL product. Mm. I had taught all the sales engineers how to do proof of concepts, how to make the products sing and dance with each other. And so when they would sell, and, and, and on top of that, the services organization did not want to have anything to do with the metadata aspect of the product suite. They just made their living with the ETL stuff. They knew it worked. They were happy. This was a new product. It had its pieces that weren't as smooth as they should have been. And they liked to code. You know, they people who really get into metadata and data management, if you really love to code, that's probably not going to be 
uh, a panacea for you. True. Because we model the data so that you don't have to write so much code. So, um, so anyway, I uh, left Essential and I said, huh, well, I'll take a couple months off. And then I think the next job I have, if, if I get laid off again, I'm going to lay myself off. And I got a call from one of the field people saying, look, this customer really needs help. La, 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 la. Will you come out and, um, and help them? And I spent two weeks out in California helping this customer get the metadata infrastructure put in place, had the ETL tool working with it. So they got what they were looking for, uh, some data lineage that they needed. And um, uh, it was great. I loved it. You know, I could go in, I could really make a difference. I didn't have to come back to 150 email messages that I had gotten during the day. And um, so I said, I'm going to just do this. And so the sales uh, folks and the sales engineers, all the people that I had trained, they said, oh, you want to implement the metadata portion? Uh Oh, you need to call Barbara Nichols. And so that first year and a half of my business easily was based upon referrals in that way. So that was really a good thing. That's great. And yeah, and then, you know, expanded from there, you know, a lot of times it was connected to the ETL tool, they wanted the metadata tool, but sometimes it wasn't sometimes and I view myself as being sort of tool agnostic, but Mm -hmm. tool aware, you know, I need to know how they work. um, In order to be able to make recommendations about what tool is going to make their lives you know, the most easy and, and give them the benefit they're looking for. Um, so I need to know about them, but um, that's really helpful, but especially when you're trying to integrate things. Yeah. So I, I feel like now there's, there's metadata everywhere in all of these technology mm-hmm. tools and, and there's, there's metadata yeah. platform tools and, and metadata add-ons yeah. to data stack tools and all of these things. Like, it feels like at this point, there's so many tools. Shouldn't we have yeah. an answer by now? Like, shouldn't this be an easy thing to do? Why? Why well, hasn't tools? <laughs> yeah, why haven't tools solved this for us yet? What? What's... Uh, yeah, I think you know, back you know, even in the '70s when I was working, people have always been searching for the silver bullet, you know, and. Um, you know, I remember when it was going to be artificial intelligence, you know, back in the early 80s, that was going to that was going to solve all the world's problems. Right. And it did, of course. And then object orientation. Oh, my God, that was going to solve all the world's problems. You didn't have to do any designs. You did it object oriented and you'd be in good shape. And yeah. that didn't quite work out as well as some people hoped it would. And when you get right down to it, um there's different slices of these things. You can talk about object orientation from a programming perspective and from a data perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's very powerful in a data perspective. I like modeling data that combines entity relationship modeling with the ability to do subtypes and inheriting of attributes, you know, from the super types above. I think it's a great way to, to do data modeling. It's a bit of a hybrid approach, but most of the tools you know, do that now, the data modeling tools, but they all are solving a particular problem. 
And nobody is going, you know, completely end to end. And people want to buy products that they like and they want them to work together. Mm-hmm. So I think what's missing is, you know, you have um, a set of blocks, you know, and you're building something, but there are a couple of pieces missing. So a lot of times it's how do you orchestrate the tools to work together so that you get, you know, as a byproduct of simply doing your work, you get something like data lineage that you can go from this column on this report came from this ETL job, which came from that ETL job, which came from that ETL job back to a a business glossary and a data model upon Mm -hmm. which it started. And this is huge for companies, especially like in the banking business with the Basel II banking accords. If you can demonstrate to uh, that you have control of your data to that degree, you don't have to keep as much money in reserve for making loans. This is huge. This right. saves them a tremendous amount of money. So the data lineage, it's not just technical. Mm-hmm. Um it can be dealt with in a technical way with tools. And, but when you want to add tools, like I want my BI tool to be able to talk to my metadatabase. I want my ETL tool to talk to my metadatabase. Mm-hmm. How do they need to talk so that the metadata seamlessly can be connected, you know, between the tools that I'm using? Yeah, that's a great and, point. And, and, and it's where, where does the responsibility for, data lineage lie because it's when it's when you're like consuming da- data kind of at the end of that life cycle where you say okay finally all this data has come to me i want to know right. what was that journey like then yeah. you're stuck with trying to go back and figure it all out and that's not yeah. the right way to do that like it's it's yeah. it's really hard and and i know i'm yeah. sure you've you've had to go down that path how do you yeah. how do you unwind that cuz that's a tight knot that is especially in yeah. large organizations um, yep. You know, that's, it's, it's tricky to unwind. How, how do you start to address yep. a big problem like that? Well, I think you have to look at, you know, what's, what do you need to know? Do you need to be able to go from the column on the report, you know, all the way back to the business glossary? And what, what happened to this data on its trip from its source to the column on this report that I'm looking at right now? Right. That is typically what's looked for. So you can, you know, go back from the BI tool and the ETL tool if they're both using a repository that allows these things to be connected under the covers. Um, that's where those linkages get get maintained. Mm-hmm. In some ETL tools, you have to do things a certain way. There's some ETL tools where you can build a perfectly running ETL job that never uses the metadata layer underneath. Whereas changing people to say, no, you have to get the metadata for this database from the repository, not from gluing yourself to the actual database and just sucking it in because it was put there by the data modeling tool. So it has what the data description is, it has all kinds of stuff. You might be able to navigate to what's the quality of this data. I got it from this source. Is this a source that would get an A plus or a C plus? 
And how much should I depend upon the quality of this data in order to make some big business decisions? Sure. And and I'd like to think, like, the more we can pass lineage information as a handoff as part of the ETL process, the better it gets downstream. And that's Absolutely. that's great. When we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have the insights that we want from a data lineage perspective, and a lot of times this effort gets triggered from a CEO or a CFO saying, why aren't these two numbers the same? Exactly. They should be the same. Why aren't they the same? And then yes. that somebody like us has to go and under, you know, figure that out. But but right. the more we ask upstream systems to share information differently, now we're starting yeah. to influence, you know, ultimately we start to influence like operational systems and ask them to do things, which can be a cardinal sin in some yeah. organizations. We're like, no, you can't touch operations. Because so you think in a big company, how many people yeah. get involved at all those different steps? How many different right. groups are um, have interests? How many different systems you may not even have a, a, an ability to change or a touch or whatever, like the complexities of moving beyond like our, our you know, here's what we would like to do. But when you actually go and right. deal with the the need to make that happen later mm -hmm. once the systems have already been put in place it's a much more difficult challenge and Absolutely. so i think you know one easy lesson for anybody who's listening is if you're building something new do this mm -hmm. like pass the, the lineage information along like find a way to start right. to percolate that better because now is your best and, chance yeah. and i know yeah. i i think that is part of it uh the key to why it often doesn't happen mm -hmm. sometimes people don't realize they're providing metadata that they don't necessarily need, yeah. but the next person down, the next tool down the line needs it. Right. So you have to provide things that may not be, you know, in necessarily your best interest at that moment or something you need to do. But if you don't do it that way, going from, you know, the column on this report back to where this came from, the link is broken, the bridge is out. Yeah. So if they don't provide things in a particular way, you, you do a disservice down the line. And yeah. when you bring up the point about um, things, uh, you know, why are these two numbers different? What I've seen happen a lot of times is that it may not be the technology that's doing it. You right. go all the way back to the semantics and someone says, well, I want to know what net profit is mm -hmm. when we sell this thing, but nowhere is net profit defined in a single clear way. Right. So you have five source systems and they've defined net profit, you know, differently from each other. And they think they're communicating because it's the same words, mm -hmm. but the formula underneath is different. And yeah. um, that's really hard to dig out and to fix a lot of times. Well, in, 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 in your uh, uh, talk here, you, you, you've brought up a couple scenarios where this is why data policies and data governance exists, because exactly. if left to their own devices, they're going to do things that are not as beneficial to the overall system as we need them right. to be. And so saying things right. like, hey, you need to provide lineage information or, hey, this right. is the clear definition of how we make this term work in our organization. Yep. Those are yep. things that can't be done in that fragment, in that in that silo right. with the best benefit of everyone. That's why you need that coordination. Exactly. That's why you need those policies. Exactly. And that's, you know, where the data governance comes in and jobs like data stewardship and, you know, data controllers. It usually 
it's hard to wrest some of that, you know, get some of that authority out of the hands of the technical people and get the business people to realize that, guess what? You own the definition of this stuff. Some people, you know, it, some businesses say, oh, no, the data, well, that's all IT. And it's not. What the data means is the business's responsibility. Right. Um, and, you know, you see data anomalies all the time. Um, you know, I told a story once that is uh, funny about Mass Hampshire. Yeah. I was looking at um, a data model for an HR part of a business. And uh, I, this was about digital. And mm-hmm. I can say it now because digital doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I'm looking down the list of valid state codes. And I see MH. And I said, what's MH? And they said, oh, that's Mass Hampshire. And I said, <laughs> do tell. What's Mass Hampshire? And can Rhodachusetts be far behind? <laughs> and so they explained to me that when the payroll system was started, you had one address associated with an employee. You were a small company. This is the way it worked. Well, they didn't envision that at some point you might have employees that live in one state but get paid out of working in another state. Mm -hmm. For example, in Massachusetts, you must take out sales tax and all the taxes that Massachusetts has. In New Hampshire, they don't have the same taxes. Mm -hmm. They don't have, uh, you know, the same sales taxes and income taxes and property taxes. So they would pay people out of where they worked. Mm. But even if you worked in New Hampshire, if you happen to live in Massachusetts, you still had to take out Massachusetts taxes. So they invented a new state (laughs) called Mass Hampshire, which meant you work out of Nashua, New Hampshire, but you live in XYZ, Massachusetts. All be, and I said, geez, guys, you know, when you have to start making up states that the USPS doesn't know about, this is a clue that there is something missing in your data model. And you had one address associated, you know, with a, a person. A person could live at one address, work at another address. But because they didn't want to touch the payroll system because it was probably totally undocumented and it just worked. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to make any changes there. So they invented some states. But we had a, a, you know, we had very early what I would call data warehousing at digital. There was a system we had where it separated data transactions from the analytic data. And in the middle, there was a standards filter. So data had to pass through the standards filter to get to the warehouse. Mm. And it's very similar. This was before ETL tools existed, but that's what we did. So Mass Hampshire, when you saw Mass Hampshire coming through, in order to do the translation correctly, you created those two relationships on the data access side, because the last thing you want to have happen is some executive get a report that says, you know, 795 people live in Mass Hampshire. You're going, what? You know, that that's not a great thing. So, um, you know, the technical people sometimes with old systems, especially had to do certain things like that because they couldn't change the underlying data structure or were too afraid to. 
but you don't want it showing up on executive reports and you need a standard way to pull it apart and, and put it the way it should be if it had been able to be modeled correctly in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and it, so, it, it just, it's one of those examples. Of those. I love, yeah, I love there that are story. So many. Oh my God. There's so many. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah. It will. And it, it, it just, it shows, you know, the importance of realizing that, that sometimes, I mean, they didn't mean to create a huge mess by inventing a state called Mass no. Hampshire. They were reasonably no, like, you see that progression. Problem. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not solving a problem. Yeah. It was, it was, it, it was a well-intended solution mm-hmm. that had unintended consequences. And I think we exactly. can, we can all think of it, but I just, you know, and, and I love that story for multiple reasons, not least of which is that it's going to give me the best title for an episode on this podcast. <laughs> From I'm Mass thinking, Hampshire yeah. to Rotachusetts. Yeah. And yeah. Welcome to Mass Hampshire. <laughs> and and right, something, right. Um, something yeah. like that. So we'll see where it ends up, but it's, it, you know, well, it, it, it was, just, it was funny. I was telling a couple of my colleagues who worked for an insurance company. Um, we had worked together at deck and mm-hmm. I said, Oh God, you remember mass Hampshire? You know, we had like, you know, how many States are there? You know, 50 States. We had like 54 States and they didn't laugh. And I said, what, what's the matter? And she said, we have 76 state codes. Oh no. I went, oh no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So there was a lot that went around. They they built a whole other country with their states. <laughs> so I don't know why, but they had reasons. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and I think if you dig enough in any organization that's been a, around for a while with different systems and different mm-hmm. consequences, you see these artifacts that are, are crazy. And, and the danger, too, is that, you know, this one's funny because it was commonly used. You had an answer in front of you. But how right. many things can you think about that you've encountered? countered by looking at the data and nobody knows that that business knowledge has left long ago and you just have to you know try to figure out what to do about it it's it's... there was a a, another one that i loved where um you know it's it's totally business semantics in that this one company i was working with they were having a horrible problem coming up with a set of um uh, standard industrial classifications and i thought well, that seems silly because there are published ones. So, you know, what's the, the segmentation codes? What What's the problem? And so I talked with them. We were on a conference call. And after about 10 minutes, I had to stop. And I said, you're trying to build market segmentation codes. And they said, yes. And I said, I need to ask you what your definition of market is. Mm-hmm. Because for most companies, the market is something that's out there and you're trying to secure a piece of it. And they said, oh no, that's not what it means here. And I uh. said, what does it mean here? It's the, the group inside the company that services that client. And I said, well, no wonder you can't come up with one set of codes. You're, you're addressing two different things. Again, like the States, you know, they, they were missing a relationship. There was a you know, there's a standard industrial classification, a SIC code for a company mm-hmm. that doesn't change. You can purchase the, the set, you know, from Dun & Bradstreet. Right. It doesn't change unless the company changes its business. But who services them inside your company, that's a completely different thing. Right. 
I, they had a, a, a not-for-profit hospital with a segmentation code of profit because a particular area of the business serviced that client. Uh-huh. So they're reporting inaccurately on what they're doing. And I said, you know, you, you have two different things here. And they went, oh, yeah, well, go tell that to management. I said, wait a minute. You are the data governance committee. I would have no trouble going into your CEO of this very large corporation and explaining this issue. And I bet she would say, fix it, make it so. If you don't have the authority to do that as the data governance people, who does? You know, this is what you are supposed to be bringing up, you know, but sometimes people who come from the technical side, I think they think, no, we have to do this work around because technically, you know, the, the CEO isn't going to understand my problem. They'll understand the business problem. They'll understand if they're getting bad data. They'll understand if their reports aren't working or they're getting two different answers for the same thing. Yeah. That, that has traction. It, it It's, I think a, there's a pattern there too, where people that have become, um, you know, advocates for things like data governance. We have, uh, we we deal at that most granular level, at the lowest level, with all of the data. That's that's how data gets recorded. Is at the at the lowest level. And I think there's often that fear of of raising issues too high or feeling like these things aren't at the level of the executive team or or what have you. But right. what you realize is that as you know, as we gain more experience in our careers, these are strategic issues. These are business Absolutely. limiting factors that do. you know, raise the eyebrow of executives. I mean, like we talked about earlier, that CEO is going to say, Hey, these two numbers don't match. Why don't they match? The, the, the the leadership does care about data and uses data. They may be Mm -hmm. using it in aggregate, but that aggregate still relies on the quality of the underlying granular form. Absolutely. I've often, you know, looked at data in the most granular form, like the periodic table of elements. And as you combine those elements into molecules, that's where you're getting the information that shows up on the reports. But if everybody has a slightly different periodic table of contents for data, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. And your, and your data model the consistency of what's in the data model, that's where you record your standard answers. And um, that becomes your, your business uh, glossary that you know ties to your data catalog because data lineage is important, but so is where used analysis. So I have this thing in my data catalog called, oh, I don't know, social security number. Mm-hmm. And there's a definition for it. And guess what? The government let's pretend, said, we're going to uh, make the social security number longer. Ah. We're going to add another four digits to it. Now you have to find every place that that is implemented in all of your data structures, old crusty files, databases, tables, you name it. And you have to find all of that and make the changes. So, where used impact analysis is really like that flip side of data lineage. Data lineage is sort of like ancestry.com, you know, for what you're looking at on your uh, uh, reports and things. But 
it's just as important to know, oh my God, this change is happening. Sort of like the deck number at digital when they were running out of orders. Where are all the places I need to go to make that change so nothing breaks? It's really important. That is. And and so we're we're about out of time. Um Okay. We've covered a lot of ground today and it's been a pleasure mm. talking to you. I hope oh, I hope we can have you. you back again. I feel like we could uh love make to. this a, a regular uh, uh you know appearance on the show cuz I, I love uh-huh. your stories and and the way to bring it together. Um mm-hmm. you know, I feel like for some of the folks listening, this this may be a bit overwhelming. Like they, there's a lot of different directions and and you know challenges and and every yeah I always I always joke like every stone you unturn it's worse than you were hoping and there's also a hundred more stones you know and that so can it's That's that true. You know, where do they start like in, in the last minute or two we have like where should people start when they just know hey we've got problems and I yep. you know, we're struggling how do you get going when you when you work with an yep. organization well I think when you have your data governance you know, committee or the VP or whoever is sponsoring the whole data program, which you do need. If you don't have that, you're not going to get very far. But I think you have to prioritize the business problems. Mm-hmm. You know, every um, every instance of, of a data problem might not be felt at the highest levels of the business. Pick something that matters. Yeah. You know, pick something to fix that matters. And document how you did it and start from there. And, you know, it may be it's solving one of those data lineage issues. Maybe it's finding out that net profit has 14 different definitions and singling in on one of them and making the changes or transforming the data so that the same definition is coming out the other side. I think you have to pick something that's going to have business impact and where you can show Here's what we did. And by solving this problem, we either saved the company this amount of money or you can make better decisions, which means you don't put your next building in the wrong place, you know, or something like that. Those are really, you know, you bet your business decisions. So pick something that's relevant and solve a problem and you'll have people that love you forever, I think. Yeah, Barbara, that's awesome advice. And and thank you so much for for being on the show today. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 